does it really matter whether Jesus rose from the dead? Wouldn't it be enough that he taught us how to live and showed us how to live? Wouldn't it be enough that he gave the supreme example of love by dying on the cross in our place? Does it really matter whether he rose from the dead? Couldn't we still have Christianity without Christ's resurrection? In fact, wouldn't it make Christianity much easier to sign up to? Wouldn't it make it easier for skeptical people who just won't swallow the idea of his resurrection? Maybe you have found yourself asking those kind of questions. Lots of people have asked them. And some of them have decided that, yes, it actually doesn't matter whether Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, they think we'd be doing the Christian cause a big favor if we stopped insisting on it. Well, it may help us to know those kind of questions have been around for a long time. And in our passage this morning, Paul gives a very clear answer to them. He spells out for us why Christ's resurrection matters. Last week, we began looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in verses 1 to 11 of this chapter, Paul presented the main thing, the heart of Christianity. It's the truth that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Whatever good and healthy diversity there is in the church of Jesus Christ, whatever variety there is in the gifts given by the Holy Spirit, whatever cultural variations in the way the church looks and sounds, allowing for all of that and celebrating all of that, there is and there always will be the same foundation and heart to the church. Wherever the church is found, its main thing will always be Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That was verses 1 to 11. And now in the rest of this chapter, Paul is going to focus on the second part of this main thing, Christ's resurrection. At the beginning of the letter, Paul spent considerable time focusing on the cross, the death of Christ. And now at the climax of the letter, the focus is on his resurrection. Paul has already announced it in verses 1 to 11. In those verses, he also listed eyewitnesses who could verify it. And now he wants us to understand why it matters. So we're going to read from verse 12 down to verse 28. And if you're still looking for this passage, it's page 1156 in the church Bible or in the large print 1788. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless 
and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This is God's word. I enjoy reading novels that imagine things have gone wrong in the world. One of the common scenarios in those kind of books is that there's been a nuclear holocaust or some kind of worldwide environmental disaster. And the survivors of that are wandering around the devastated earth, picking over the ruined cities, trying to survive and start over again. They have to try and rebuild life and community out of the ruins. Another one that's been done a few times is to imagine the Nazis had won the Second World War. What would it be like to live in that kind of a world? Now, I realize those sort of stories aren't everyone's cup of tea. And those of us who enjoy them probably shouldn't be reading too many of them. But they can be very helpful when it comes to appreciating what we have. Sometimes imagining an alternate reality can show us the blessing of how things really are. And that's what Paul does in verses 12 to 19 of our passage. If we're going to understand why Christ's resurrection matters, we have to imagine the alternative. What if it hadn't happened? Paul tells us, if Christ was not raised, sin and death have won. Verse 12 shows us this question is a live issue in the church in Corinth. 
at least some people in the church are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Now that seems very, very odd. It will seem odd, particularly if we can remember back to verses 1 to 11. Because back in verse 1, Paul said the Corinthian believers had received the good news he preached. They had taken their stand on that good news. Then again in verse 11, after Paul has said one of the essential parts of the good news is that Christ was raised on the third day. After he said that, down in verse 11, he says, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. So how can these people have received, believed, and taken their stand on this good news while still saying there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, in many ways, the culture in Corinth was like ours today. Many people believed the dead were simply non-existent. Or if they weren't non-existent, they were simply disembodied spirits, and that is how they would stay. In other words, in pagan Corinth, there was no hope, there was no expectation of a bodily future beyond death. There was none of the hope that we find scattered through the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 16, where David says to God, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You won't leave me in a shadowy place. Or in Psalm 49, which says, God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. Or Daniel chapter 12, where an angel tells Daniel about a time when those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. In pagan culture, there was none of that hope. And that was the culture these Christians had come out of. Apparently, they're still accepting the idea that death is the end, at least as far as the body is concerned. So how could they have received, believed, and taken their stand on the good news that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day? How did they reconcile that? Well, presumably, they convinced themselves it was some sort of spiritual resurrection. Maybe it was the idea that he lived on through the teaching of his disciples, or that he lived on in the hearts of his people. Whatever they thought exactly, it fell short of believing in the actual bodily resurrection of Christ. And Paul says, if Christ has not been raised bodily, if he didn't rise to renewed physical life, then he didn't truly rise at all. And if he didn't truly rise at all, here is the situation we find ourselves in. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Therefore, nothing. Totally pointless. Verse 15, more than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, we apostles are not nice people. We're liars who are deceiving you. And we stand under God's judgment for misrepresenting God. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. 
Paul leaves no room at all for the idea that it doesn't matter what you have faith in so long as you have a sincere faith. No way. Paul says if you have faith in something that isn't true, then your faith is worthless and your life is a joke. If Jesus' body rotted in the tomb, then Christians are idiots for having faith in Jesus. Because he repeatedly told his disciples he would rise. If he got that bit wrong, only idiots would trust him about anything else that he said. And even worse than being idiots, if Jesus Christ was not raised, then we are still in our sins. His death was not an acceptable sacrifice to God because God left him in the tomb. That means our sins are not paid for. We're not forgiven people. We still face paying the penalty ourselves. And we will be doing that for all of eternity. We can have no assurance of peace with God now, and we can have no hope of peace with him on Judgment Day. Verse 18, if Christ has not been raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. We noticed last week the Christian teaching is that no one is going to be sleeping for eternity. But when the early Christians spoke about death as falling asleep, they meant to say that death was a temporary state. People who fall asleep wake up again. And Christians expected to wake one day in God's welcoming presence. But here Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then those who die trusting in him are lost. Meaning not that they don't know where they are. It means they're experiencing eternal destruction away from God's welcoming presence. Here lost means the opposite of saved. And so putting all of this together in verse 19, Paul says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now we might want to object to that. We might want to say, well, aren't there benefits to the Christian life here and now? We might even wonder, wouldn't it be okay, really, if what we believe turns out to be false in the end? Wouldn't our lives still have had a purpose for these years? Wouldn't we have lived a good and useful life helping other people? Last year at our holiday club barbecue, one of the parents said exactly that to me. He was an atheist and he said, I have to tell you, I just love what you do here at the church. I can see these kids are all having a great time. They get so much out of it. You're doing something really good. And the way you Christians all work together, you even put on this meal for us. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if what you're teaching here is true, does it? That parent believed what quite a lot of people believe. He believed that Christianity is a useful delusion. It gets people doing good things. It gives them something to live for. So never mind if it's true. 
And that sort of logic can almost begin to sound fair enough. We can be tempted to say, well, maybe you're right. But Paul will not have it. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Why is that true? Well, Paul is not denying the benefits of Christianity here and now. The joy and peace we can experience, the purpose it does give us, the power of forgiveness it brings into our lives, the good works it can produce in our lives. Christianity does bring about all of that and more. But Christianity also calls us to sacrifice, to deny ourselves, to prefer others. Following Christ may well cause us to face opposition and hardship. It will almost certainly lead us on a path that somewhere includes suffering. Often deep and bitter suffering. And what promise does Christianity hold out for us in those times? How does it encourage us to keep going in those times? It's through the promise that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The promise that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That's the promise that kept Jesus going. Morris quoted it in his prayer earlier. From the book of Hebrews, we're told, for the joy that was set before Jesus... He endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus didn't enjoy his suffering, but he went through with it for the joy that awaited him on the other side of that suffering. The joy of victory and resurrection life. The joy of his Father's welcome. The Father's pronouncement of well done. But if there was no joy waiting on the other side of the cross, if this life was it for Jesus Christ, then he invested his life foolishly. He'd have been wise to avoid helping the poor and the oppressed and the sick because that just got him in trouble with the authorities. And it's the same for us. As Christians, whether we even think about it or not, we are making a calculation every day of our lives. Whether to sacrifice now, whether to trust God's wisdom now, even if it seems to make life harder for us. And when we decide to sacrifice, when we stick with God's wisdom, it's because we believe it will ultimately be worth it. We accept difficulty for Christ's name now. We trust him in suffering now because we believe it will be worth it in the end. Much of the time, it will not seem worth it here and now in the moment. But we persevere in obedience. We pursue faithfulness 
for the eternal joy that Christianity promises us. If I could be so cheeky as to say it, that is why atheists are a bit thin on the ground when it comes to really risky humanitarian work. I'm not saying they're never there on the scene, but they're not often there on the scene. Of course, the news reports will not highlight this, but it tends to be Christians who, for example, are willing to go into the middle of an Ebola crisis and put their lives on the line for other people, people they don't even know. If you are not a Christian, why would you put yourself in danger like that? If this life is all there is, why would you risk having it cut short? Look after yourself for goodness sake. Christians take the risk because they believe there are greater things ahead. God's forgiveness and his promise of eternal joy, those things set us free to take risks for the good of others. So let's just be totally honest with each other. If there is no eternal joy, we are making a foolish investment. We are of all people most to be pitied. That's our dose of alternate reality. Paul has painted a picture of life without Christ's resurrection, and it is not pleasant. It's a cold, miserable prospect. So thank God it's not true. In verse 20, Paul breaks the tension he's been building up. He reminds us, but Christ has indeed been raised. We're not living in that alternate reality I've just been talking about. This is reality. The sun has risen. He has risen indeed. Paul has already listed the eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection. That was back in verses 5 to 8. He took time to do it. To show us we have the same access to that historical event as we have to other historical events. Through the witness of those who were there by means of the records they left behind. And in the case of Christ's resurrection, those witnesses were willing to die for their story. It wasn't something they were unsure about. Many of them did die for the truth of it. Christ has indeed been raised. And because Christ was raised, his reign has begun. The key to understanding verses 20 to 28 is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. The first page of the Bible gives us the account of God creating the world. And at the climax of that account, we read this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What is being described there? What is mankind being commissioned to do right at the very beginning? They're being commissioned to rule over God's world on God's behalf. Not to trash God's creation, but to bring about its flourishing. God loves what he created. He believes that it's good. He pronounces that it's good. And humanity is to cause that creation to flourish. God did not make this fantastic world so we could break it. Our mission from the very start was to rule it well for God's glory. And our head was Adam. Together with Eve, he was our representative. He was commissioned on behalf of all of us. But we only have to read as far as Genesis chapter 3 to find out how Adam and Eve did. They rebelled against their commission. They still wanted to rule the world, but not on God's behalf. They wanted to rule it for themselves. They wanted to take God's place in his world. So they rebelled against him, and their reign brought death and destruction to the world. They were called to make this world flourish, but they brought brokenness instead from top to bottom. That is the background to these verses in our passage. Because they tell us Christ was raised to achieve the reign that Adam failed to achieve. Christ was raised to restore creation to what it was always intended to be. A world that flourishes because it's a world where God's reign is complete and uncontested. Christ was raised to put right what Adam put wrong. To make this world a place where God is all in all. And in these verses, Paul shows us two aspects of Christ's reign. It's a reign, first of all, that guarantees our resurrection. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since, since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Verse 20 mentions the first fruits. That comes from the Old Testament. When a crop was ready for harvesting, the first portion of that crop would be gathered, and it would be offered to God in thanksgiving, a sheaf of whatever was being harvested. And the idea was, this is only the start. There's much more to come. And all of that, well, that is God's as well. Now, of course, it would be used to feed the farmer and his family, but it was God's harvest. So that first portion was both the start of the full harvest and it was the sign of who the harvest belonged to. 
So Paul says, what was the harvest that came from Adam's sin? It was death. He died, and we've all been dying since. 100% record. His sin and death were the evil first fruits of an evil harvest. Since the creation of the human race, Adam has been our head and representative. His failed reign over creation set out the destiny for the rest of us. It's a destiny of death. If we find ourselves wanting to complain that that's not fair, all we need to do is realize none of us have done any better than Adam. Ever since Adam brought in a reign of sin and death, we've been reusing his approach. We rebel against God just like Adam did. We think and act as if we are God, just like Adam did. But Christ was raised from death to be the head of a new humanity, one that is reconciled to God and loves to serve God in the world, not to try and take his place. When we put our faith in Christ, we join this new humanity. Notice it doesn't consist of everyone. Adam's old humanity did include everyone. But verse 23 says Christ's new humanity consists of those who belong to him. We belong to him when we trust him as our Savior and live for him as our Lord. And at that point, we begin to experience new life here and now. We're no longer God's enemies. We've become his ambassadors in the world. And we know this is just a foretaste of what is to come. We will rise as Christ was raised. His resurrection was the first fruits. We are the rest of the harvest. Verse 23 says, we will be raised when he comes. Meaning when he returns to earth. At Christmas, we celebrate Christ's first advent, his arrival on earth as a baby. But the New Testament tells us to expect a second advent, when Christ will come again, not as a baby, but as the all-conquering king. And when he comes, those who belong to him will enter fully into his resurrection life. Next week, we'll hear details about what that life will be like. But for now, the significance is Christ's resurrection was not some isolated, weird event. It wasn't a piece of icing on the cake for the few years Jesus spent on earth. Like a little flourish to sign off with. No, Christ's resurrection began his reign as head of a new humanity. And when we join that new humanity his resurrection becomes the guarantee of our own resurrection. He is the first fruits of a great harvest that is going to be gathered to God. And here's the good news about where we will live our resurrection life. It will be in a world that flourishes because it is as it was always meant to be. 
a world that flourishes because it's a world where God is all in all. The reign of the risen Jesus is a reign that will restore all of creation. Look at these last verses again, verses 24 to 28. Then, in other words, when Christ returns and we are raised, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. There are a lot of things we might wonder about these verses. Why is Christ going to hand over the kingdom to his Father? Aren't they going to reign side by side? Why does the Son have to be made subject to his Father? Is he not subject to him at the moment? Is he being disobedient to his Father? Is the risen Jesus some kind of maverick who will eventually have to be brought back in line? Didn't Jesus say, I always do what pleases my Father? Well, the answers to those questions become clearer if we remember the connection back to Genesis chapter 1. Adam was commissioned to develop creation and rule it well for God's glory. This world was to be the arena of God's glory. That was what Adam's reign was supposed to nurture. But instead, Adam and his children brought a reign of sin and death. So when we read here about Christ reigning until all God's enemies are under his feet, we're talking about a specific kind of reign. The reign we're talking about is Christ's work of putting right what Adam put wrong, restoring creation. That reign has an obvious end point. It will end when all evil and rebellion has been crushed. And all brokenness has been healed. At that point, Christ will have put right what Adam put wrong. In that sense, his rectifying reign will be over. He will have fulfilled God's purposes for human history. But we're not to imagine Christ will then be demoted somehow at that point. No, he will be at his father's side as Revelation pictures him, sharing the full divinity of his father and always doing what pleases his father because he is one with his father and he loves to do his father's will. Historians point us to a parallel in the ancient world that's very helpful for understanding the picture here. When there was a rebellion in the Roman Empire, the emperor would send his top general to deal with that rebellion, to restore the emperor's rule in the empire. And when that general had completed his mission, he would return to Rome and publicly show his submission to the emperor. 
He would show that his victory had not been an attempt to usurp the emperor. It was for the emperor. And the general at that point would not suffer a demotion. He wouldn't cease to be a general. He would not lose any of his power. But having accomplished his mission, he would, in a sense, set his power aside. He had done his job. He had restored the emperor's rule over the empire. And that's the picture Paul is giving us here. The purpose of Christ's reign is to renew his father's creation, to root out corruption and evil, to restore freedom, righteousness, and peace. Once that mission has been completed, the sun will still be the sun, high and exalted. In that sense, he will never cease to reign. But he will set aside his enemy-subduing power. If you like, he will set aside his sword. Because that aspect of his reign will be completed. Every enemy will have been subdued. God will be all in all. When we read about Christ destroying enemies, we naturally think of governments and corrupt regimes. And that's certainly part of it. But the enemies in view here includes anything and everything that stands in the way of true peace and wholeness. So we're not just talking about an end to war. This includes Christ's victory over sickness, over poverty. It includes the end of spiritual darkness and slavery. It includes Christ's victory over every last trace of rebellion in our own hearts. Part of Christ's reign that restores creation involves making his new humanity truly new. Restoring our minds and our attitudes as well as our bodies. Every bit of rebellion in our hearts will also be put under Christ's feet. We'll be set free from it. And for all of this to take place, Christ first had to be raised. His resurrection is not some frill on God's plans. It's not a garnish on the side of the plate, as if the cross is the meat in the middle of the plate. No, the resurrection is just as central as the cross is. It's our guarantee that Christ's reign has begun. It's our guarantee that all of the Father's good purposes will be fulfilled. All of those who belong to Christ will not just be raised. We will be raised to enjoy a world where finally our God is all in all. So let's never underestimate the significance of the resurrection. The New Testament tells us it's foundational to our faith. And let's never lose the joy of realizing Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. If you're not a Christian, 
How are you going to respond to this? Can you see what this means? It means you cannot afford to ignore Jesus. He has begun to reign. And he will return to claim those who belong to him. When that happens, don't you want to be with him instead of under his feet? And if you are a Christian, can you see what this means for you? You are free to give yourself in Christ's service, even when it's costly. Because whatever it costs you now, there is eternal joy ahead. Christ's resurrection is our guarantee of that. So let's give thanks from our hearts as we sing, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed.